The Supreme Court has had a busy summer, loosening gun restrictions in states, overturning Roe v. Wade, and severely threatening our Miranda rights. I'm Leah Littman, and each week on Strict Scrutiny, I'm joined by my co-hosts and fellow law professors, Melissa Murray and Kate Shaw, to break down the latest headlines and the biggest legal questions facing our country. It's more important than ever to understand the repercussions of these Supreme Court decisions and what we can do to fight back in the upcoming midterm elections. Listen to new episodes of Strict Scrutiny every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now is the perfect time to stock up on merch from all your favorite Crooked Media pods. Thanks to our limited time Black Friday offer. Now through Monday, November 29th, take 15% off site-wide and free shipping on all orders from the Crooked store. That's 15% off fan favorite shirts and mugs, plus our brand new holiday collection, including our first ever Pod Save America sweatpants. Ooh. Those are nice. Nice. Yes, we damn. <laughs> yes, we damn. This is the first time we've ever had free shipping. So take advantage. The discount will be applied at checkout to shop now. Head to crooked.com slash store. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, welcome to our traditional mailbag episode where we'll answer some questions you sent us. And then you'll hear Tommy narrate a special segment our team has been working on about how Democrats can better engage with Latino voters. It features a lot of smart voices, so tune in for that. Uh, but first, Dan, you're in luck. Oh, wow. We're having ourselves quite a Black Friday weekend offer in the Crooked Store. <laughs> I know you're excited. <laughs> This Friday through Monday, November 29th, take 15% off site-wide and free shipping on all orders. This includes brand new holiday items like our new holiday ornament, plus new Pod Save America merch, new Love It or Leave It merch, Dan merch, and more. There's, there's Dan merch. Now, here's the thing. There's Dan merch in the store. There's a wonderful um, Yes We Dan mug. There's a Yes We Dan t-shirt. I have something here that is not uh, a piece of merch that is not from our store, um, but it is very important anyway. Here it is. It's Dan Pfeiffer for Senate. Oh, <laughs> That's a Dan Pfeiffer for Senate mug. You can't see it because this is an audio podcast, but if you're tuning in on our video, it's a beautiful mug. I bought this a long time ago as, um, as a joke when, you, when the Dan for Senate thing <laughs> first started, and I forgot to do the joke on the pod. But we got so many questions in the mailbag about when you're running for Senate that, and, and you didn't want us to answer that question. Um, so I decided to bring the mug out well, to make the joke anyway. There it is. I have a couple of thoughts. First, those of you, I'm mortified on every level. Um, <laughs> my great fear when my parents arrived with my whole family for Thanksgiving this week was my dad would be wearing a Yes We Dan t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> and it frankly is a failure of the marketing department that he is unaware that it still right as, as of right now, unaware it exists. So that is grateful. Um, second, those of you listening who can't see the video miss the amazing logo on this bootleg mug with the, where the stem the- to the P is the state of Delaware. Like that is very clever, but I would just like to state for the record for the federal election commission, which is deadlocked and can do nothing, the impotent body that it is, but I've never seen this mug before. This was not created. This is not part no. of any sort of exploratory committee. It is not an FEC violation. Okay. We can proceed with the podcast. I, I, think, I, I think I Googled like Dan for Senate and found it. I don't have no <laughs> idea where I found it. So if the FEC asked me, I'm not going to be able to figure out where. Yeah, I found you better it. go to jail um, for anyway, me, Steve Bannon. 
Don't don't worry about this Dan for Senate mug. You can get real Dan merch, legitimate Dan merch at the Crooked store, crooked.com slash store. Again, 15% off Friday through Monday. Go to the store. Okay, let's get to your questions. Um, Patrick Roth asks, you guys frequently cite polls showing how popular Democratic progressive policies are. Why then have Dems done so poorly in recent elections? Is this a messaging and branding problem or maybe a polling error with these policies? Dan, what do you think? Well, I would say for a party that's done really poorly at recent elections, Democrats who control the House, the Senate, and the White House, and took 140 House seats in 2018. So we've done pretty well in recent elections. But your point is well taken, which is you keep saying, you tell us these polls that say, Democrat people love what Democrats are doing. They hate the fact that Republicans are opposing them, yet they just elected a governor, a Republican governor in a pretty blue state in Virginia, and we almost lost in New Jersey. So I understand that you can also look at that and say people love what Biden is for, but Biden's ratings are down. So I think let's unpack that in a couple of ways. First, it's important to understand how these polls works, which is someone gets a call and then a pollster reads them or shows them if it's an online poll, a set of policies and asks their opinions on it. In most cases, we know from some of this, some of this polling and some other polling that voters do not know that on their own, right? They're not, they don't know what's on the menu. Someone has to read them the menu to know what their options are. So problem number one is, Yes, people like this stuff when they're told about it, but they don't know about it on their own. So unless every person in America gets polled, we still have this information gap. Two is, I think, an assumption among Democrats that really needs to be questioned, which is the idea that people vote in their own interest, right? That it necessarily that their primary reason for voting is this is good for my, my wages, my salary, the economy. It's not about something much bigger, right? That it's all about their pocketbook. It's sort of the What's the matter with Kansas thesis that sort of dominated Democrats for years? And the other thing is, is that we don't ask people to rank these things necessarily. People, there are lots of things people like. You got poll people about education. They care passionately about education, but they rarely vote on it. Virginia being an exception, but historically that is the case. And so just because someone tells a pollster that they like it does not mean that that is the reason that they A, know about it on their own. And if B, if they did, that would be the primary driver of their vote. If that makes sense. That all makes sense. I would add one more thing. Um, people don't vote when you go into the voting booth. You don't vote for policies unless it's a it's a ballot measure. <laughs> you vote for a you vote for a candidate. And while a candidate's positions on certain policies can help voters make up their minds, they also make their decisions based on a few other factors. A candidate's position on other policies, right? A candidate has a position on a suite of policies. You might think one is popular, you might disagree with the other, right? So it's a whole bunch of policies. People make their decisions based on a candidate's party, their identity, their personality, their message, uh, perceived ability to govern, to manage the economy, to deliver on their promises. There are so many things that factor into a voter's choice of candidate. And I, I Unfortunately, today, party is probably the biggest because we're so polarized. Um, but people who don't have any, you know, people who don't identify as a Democrat or Republican, identify as an independent or who don't vote that many, don't vote that often. Um, they have a lot of things that factor into their decision that aren't just a very high polling policy. Um, Aaron on Twitter asks, should we be addressing the actual education issues that parents are concerned about in response instead of taking the bait? on critical race theory, how would we speak to that? Um, I kind of think we should. Yeah, I think we should address the actual education I think issues. I, I think I know where Aaron's coming with this question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, you know, 
here's the deal. Uh, I saw a lot of people react to um, the Virginia results by saying, well, you know, aren't we aren't, aren't most schools open again now? Yes, that's true. But I do think that they are still there's a lot of schools that are still like shutting down for a day or two or a week when there might be a COVID outbreak, when there might be an exposure. Um, there's a lot of schools that are doing something called a test to stay policy, which means that um, if a kid has COVID, then instead of sending like everyone home and canceling school for a week and going back to remote learning for a week, which is, as we found in 2020, is incredibly disruptive to a lot of children, uh, especially children from low income communities, um, then uh, they just test every other child. And if the other child are, or other children are negative, those students are negative, then they can stay and the school can remain open. So that's actually been working in a lot of areas. But there's a lot of places that don't do that. Like Detroit Public Schools is moving to remote learning on Fridays in December because I guess like COVID takes Fridays off. <laughs> it just <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, it's just there's a lot of and, and look, this is disproportionately hurting not just like suburban kids and suburban parents, but particularly disproportionately kids in low-income communities in communities of color. Um, so I do think it's a problem that, that people should talk about. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, there was a set of focus groups that was done by Third Way of Biden voters who voted for, voted for Youngkin or Biden voters who considered voting for Youngkin. So sort of soft Biden voters, I think is what you would call them. And they asked about education and education was very important to their vote. It wasn't just critical race theory, critical race theory. They were aware of that debate. They were aware of McCall's statement about uh, parents not having a say. But there was sort of a very complex set of concerns about sort of lack of control of their children's own education that was largely about COVID, but not entirely about COVID. And there is this, I think you're making a very important point where people are like, well, schools are open, so who cares? One, this happened this election was two months after schools opened, and there's a ton of complications still in place in a lot of in a lot of communities. I saw, I think it was Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times tweeting that her child has to eat lunch at 10:45 in the morning because of social distancing rules, and then doesn't get they don't do snacks, so doesn't get to eat for the rest of the day. There are some some kids who are still doing in on the East Coast in the winter doing outdoor lunch because that is obviously better for spread of disease, but. If your kid is forced to eat lunch when it's 35 degrees outside, you can see why parents would be particularly concerned about that. So I think we have to, Democrats, this is going to continue to be an issue. Hopefully it's less of an issue next year. We'll have a whole nother school year. Hopefully spread is down. Every, kids are all vaccinated. Who, who uh, So there, this could be very different as it looks in the midterm. But clearly, I mean, this is sort of one of those Twitter strumming arguments, just simply yelling kids are not actually really being taught critical race theory is not the right answer to some very legitimate concerns. Does that make sense? It does. And look, the safety of our children in schools is like the number one priority, their health and safety, of course. But like you said, you know, in the coming months, now that now that vaccines are available and made available and authorized for all school age children, right? Like then hopefully in a couple months, this a lot of this gets fixed. But um, I mean, back to the, the, the I think the question, too, is like, what should the message be from Democrats on this? And and sort of to fold in some of the critical race theory stuff, which I don't think Democrats should necessarily take the bait as that as, as Aaron asked. But I think that Democratic candidates should say, like, you know, every child should go to a school where their success and well-being is the number one priority, no matter where they live or what they look like. Right. Like we just got to got to talk about our we talk about education like Democrats talk about education all the time. We want 
better peach, better teacher pay, right? We want our schools open. We want to make sure that there's enough testing so that our kids can stay in school and that they don't have to close school all the time, you know? And I do think on the critical race theory stuff, I think we should say that, yeah, in, in our history classes, in our kids' history classes, we want them to learn that this is a country where people came together and overcame uh, and, and fought to overcome slavery and racism and all kinds of dimin- uh, discrimination. And even though we have a lot of work left to do, the progress that Americans before us have made should teach us that are better countries possible. That, and there's a there's there's a dark history to this country, but there's also people who have tried to overcome that dark history. Like there's a message on this from Democrats. That we don't have to be either afraid of it. We don't have to take the bait on it. Like, you know, I, I just don't I don't know why we wrap ourselves around the axle on the on the messaging part of this. Just as a general rule, when someone says, should you take the bait? The answer is always no. Because what, <laughs> you know what happens when you take the bait? You get a hook in your mouth and you end up on someone's dinner plate. Like, no, don't take the It's also like, should Democrats panic? Of course Democrats shouldn't panic. Well, should we run around like a crazy person and not be able to find the exit during the fire? No. So no, we should not take the bait. <laughs> yeah. Um, Chandra V asks, is there any chance we will gain House or Senate seats in the 2022 midterms? Or are we completely doomed? And Dan, there were... Quite a few variations on that question. Take it away. So you're saying there's a chance? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we should be, I want to be brutally honest in this way, which is Mm -hmm. that historically, the deck is stacked against the party in power. Like history is Mm -hmm. very clear on that. The deck is particularly stacked against us in this cycle in the House because of redistricting in a process that is going to favor Republicans. So I don't want to be seen as our old uh, our old friend Robert Gibbs used to say, uh, peeing on my leg and uh, tell me it's raining. We're not doing that here, right? There is no, it's just pee, <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and I say pee, not piss, because. So, I, so I guess about, it's a I, Southern thing. Gibbs always said that all the yeah, time. That, that and he said something. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the sayings have an age as well. Some of the sayings have an age as well. I'm just going to oh, say that. Just, that's, so, that's so funny. Um, anyhow, <laughs> it is going to be tough. But just because it is the odds are stacked against us doesn't mean we can't win. doesn't mean we don't have agency in the process. And in fact, the Senate map isn't very favorable to us. Right, All of the key races that we would need to win not just to hold the Senate, but to expand our majority, are happening in states that Joe Biden won. One narrowly, but one. And that's much better map than we had in 2018, in 2014, in 2016. And so, like, there are some things in our direction. Now, and if you want me to make sort of the, the bull case for Democrats for next year is, yes, if you look right now, we would lose the House and the Senate election right tomorrow. Like the Virginia, if you see any sort of swing like we saw in Virginia and New Jersey, like we cannot sustain that very right. well. But the election is not happening now. It's not happening next week. It's not happening next month. It's not happening for nearly a year. And next year could look very different than this year in the following ways. One, the COVID could be much better under control. The economy could be much better. Gas prices could be down. Inflation could be down. You could we sort of the economic renaissance and the life renaissance we thought we were going to that was going to happen this summer when the bulk of American adults started getting vaccinated could happen next summer, right? The hot vac summer we all wanted could be next year. And you could see just postponed a year. Hot yeah. vac summer postponed one year. 
That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and like you could see just sort of a, like a national set of relief and joy over being able to do a whole bunch of things, return to normalcy without the sort of paralyzing anxiety of the pandemic. It's also very possible and probably probable that this sort of candidates, the bulk of candidates who are going to run next year look more like Larry Elder than Glenn Youngkin. Right. That's a very unique set of circumstances in Virginia primary that had them end up with Glenn Youngkin and not Amanda Chase, who was a very Trumpy candidate. And the list of people running that Trump has endorsed is quite really a masterclass in uh, political vulnerability. And then the third thing is, is that Trump was so far in the background in Virginia in a way he's unlikely to be next year when he is out campaigning for mm. these people as people he's endorsed. And so, you know, you have a world where the stars could align, the Democrats could have a much better chance to hold on to the majority than political prognosis today would suggest. Doesn't mean that's going to happen. Doesn't mean it's a given. I'm not making any predictions. But just because things are bad now doesn't mean they will be bad next year. And the work we do between now and then will affect that. For sure. And just so people, I'm sure you might be listening, wondering, what about gerrymandering? It's happening all over the place. So Dave Wasserman, the folks at the Cook Political Report, they're the best at this. Um, they currently have our gerrymandering losses at two and a half seats. Democrats have two and a half, will lose two and a half seats, which is much better than it was. Uh, of course, we have a three seat majority in the House. So pretty narrow. If every, So if everything falls into place and we end up only losing two and a half seats from redistricting, um, yeah, then it's like a really tight race for the House in the best possible economic conditions. Um, still really hard. Still a lot of safe seats that we lost from gerrymandering. But, eh, you know, <laughs> Senate, like you said, is in, again, good economic conditions. And again, I know the economy is growing. Job numbers are low. But again, we're talking about inflation and gas prices going down by next year, which, again, is very possible. Um, you mentioned the Senate map. Just so everyone knows, here's what we have to do. We have to reelect Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Those are the four seats that we have to hold. And then to gain a Senate seat, uh, to put to to stop hearing so much from either Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, <laughs> we have to win like either Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Again, like you said, Dan. Two, two states that um, uh, Joe Biden won narrowly, uh, or flip North Carolina, Ohio, or Iowa, or Florida. Um, much more difficult, but those are the those are probably all the competitive races. So got to get to work. Mariana Pecora on Twitter asks, my 18th birthday is the day after Thanksgiving. Now that I'm almost a legal adult, what more can I be doing to prep for the midterms? That's the kind of question I love. Uh, take it, take you, it away. Just you go to votesaveamerica.com. That's what you do. And uh, we have our No Off Years Fund, which is uh, we're raising money. We're trying to raise um, uh, a lot of money by the end of the year to uh, donate to organizations, grassroots organizations on the ground in swing states um, who are trying to register voters now ahead of the midterms and 2024. One of the big problems is, you know, uh, we always like register voters towards the end, close to an election, towards the end of a campaign. And we know that if you register voters early, if you start having conversations early, if you start canvassing early, you have a better chance of registering voters and getting people mobilized. Um, so go to votesaveamerica.com now. Now you can donate to off years in the new year, early in the new year. We should have some more actions for people to take. 
um, from, to, from volunteering to everything else. Um, so stay tuned for that. There's going to be a lot more to come early in the new year, but um, we will have stuff for everyone to do in 2022. So um, that's that's our message to you, Marianne. And congrats on almost turning 18. We're excited for you to be involved. Anything else you'd add, Dan? No, that's exactly right. Go to votesaveamerica.com. Get involved. We're excited to have you in this electorate. We need more people like you. We need some, we're going to do some deep canvassing. Should we talk about deep canvassing? Because I keep hearing this from um, Democratic organizers, and I never heard, knew what deep canvassing was, in case you hear it. It's just talking to people earlier. <laughs> it's you just, just got it's disinvited just from next week's political check-in at Crooked Media. <laughs> You know, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm a speechwriter. I just try to make language accessible. It's just talking to folks, talking to folks earlier, longer, having more conversations so that you're not just knocking on the door and saying, hey, there's an election next week. Can I uh, can I expect your vote? Like, it's it's good to have conversations with voters or potential voters all year round and to really dig into what their concerns are, what they care about, what they want to see in their candidates. Like, that's how we build sort of organizing momentum and strength as a party. Deep canvassing. Who knows? Um, okay. All right. Since it's Thanksgiving, Dan, we get one question that allows us to engage in completely irresponsible speculation. How's that? Just one? Just one? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, Carrot Kate on Twitter asks, I can't figure out who Trump would pick as his running mate. If you had to guess right now, who would it be? Go for it. Okay. So this is not easy. So I've tried to identify which of the Republicans we would get there by process of elimination. So what do you, what is Trump looking for in a running mate? Um, oh, I thought you were asking. No, 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 go, go. We, well, we can do that. We can do this thought exercise together. Someone who's not going to steal the spotlight from him. But will who, steal an election. Very will steal an election. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Um, someone who is, uh, let's say, presentable on television who has that star appeal right because well, he's a fucking he's a fucking you know television person um you can stretch that definition pretty yeah, I mean, far like mike you know? pence well mike pence looked like he fucking played a ronald reagan character on television and that's, I how, guess, that's okay. how his whole fucking political career looks but anyway um those two things and then <clears throat> maybe someone who can help win him some constituencies that republicans been, have been having some problems with in the past so do you have a name? That's what I would say. Do you have a name? I want you to go first. This is your okay. we, We're switching off who goes first with each okay, question. Okay. This is your question. Right. I just So my view of what he needs is obviously someone who he believes when push comes to shove will steal the election. Right? He, does, <laughs> he does not want to be in a situation where his supporters have to attempt murder again. Like that is not yeah. something he wants. Second, it needs to be someone who just has no self-respect. Like you have to be willing to be made fun of, ridiculed, demeaned on a daily basis. And then three has to be someone who is incredibly loyal no matter what. Right. Mm. That sort of thing. The only person I could come up with would fit that, which goes against a couple of your criteria, was Ted Cruz. Like would Ted Cruz steal an election for Trump? Yes. Really? Has Ted Cruz proven that no matter what Trump does to him, no matter how much he makes fun of him, no matter how much he demeans him, that he will stay loyal. Yes. I mean, he accused his father of killing JFK and called his wife ugly. And he, Ted Cruz is still right there with him. So I think Ted <laughs> Cruz would be high on the list of people who would do whatever what Trump wants. Okay. That's interesting. I did not expect that from you. I have, I, I, we were told to pick one person. I have four names on a list. Okay, good. Way to follow instructions. 
it's our podcast. We can do what we want. <laughs> That's what we think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, Christy Noem. I think that's the four. I think Christy Noem is a could fit all those Ted Cruz qualities. Like when yeah, she's still she an election, I, yes. So I, I, I did some searching around for this question because uh, before I named Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, because I was like, I wonder if either of them have been. I didn't wonder about Nikki Haley because she is a she'll say whatever. <laughs> she has clearly proven that she will criticize Trump and then not criticize Trump. And now she loves Trump and she's embraced him. She is completely shameless. <laughs> Just we have we have seen that from her. So the loyalty thing, I actually think is fine with her. But Tim Scott, I was unclear about. Tim Scott recently said that he would absolutely back Trump in 2024. And I didn't realize this, but after the insurrection, Tim Scott was quoted as saying, um, the one person I don't blame for the insurrection is Donald Trump. OK, Tim Scott seems reasonable. You know, and I think like having a black man on the ticket or having a woman on the ticket or Nikki Haley's case versus Indian American on the ticket. Like, I I think you could see Trump and his advisors, if they're somewhat smart, thinking that 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 would help in some way. Um, And then DeSantis, you could just DeSantis is DeSantis is the one I'm actually least sure about because he's such a star in the Republican Party in his own right. (laughs) What a wonder. I know. I know. Sorry to say it, but it's true. Um you wonder if Trump would want that. Yeah, see, um, I think that's the other piece of this, which is I think when – you remember the – it was kind of between Christie, Newt Gingrich, and Pence. I can't believe we're still mm-hmm. talking about this, so apologies to everyone um, – in 2016. And eventually I think went with Pence because in their own bizarre, strange Fox News ways, Christie – and Gingrich have star power, right? They have personality. They have charisma. Yes. They've been more famous. They've been like Republican celebrities. And Mike Pence is just, uh, I think I once referred to him, maybe even in writing in a book as a homophobic bottle of paste. Uh, and so it's like, I think that star power is actually a <laughs> negative for Trump, right? And that's, yeah. so that's why I think he would worry about Nikki Haley or Tim Scott. It's interesting. But anyway, that's, those are my who thoughts. Who cares? Also, um, like, what? talk about something we have who no cares? say over. Yes. All right, that's what I said. It's irresponsible speculation. We admitted it. Um, Joy on Twitter asks, is there any reason to be hopeful for America's future? What keeps you guys sounding so optimistic and upbeat despite what is happening in the courts with climate change and the brazen attack on our civil liberties and voting rights? I need an answer that will help me sleep. Okay. I struggle with this all the time. I'm sure you do, Dan. Like... <laughs> I am. I'm not always optimistic and upbeat. Uh, the news makes me sad and angry and outraged and alarmed all the time. Um, I would say two things. One, I don't think about this in terms of predictions, like whether the future will be good or bad, because we have no idea. I think about it in terms of actions, and there are only two. There is to give up or keep fighting, right? And I want to keep fighting. I decide, I'm currently deciding to keep fighting. Maybe it'll change in the future, but right now I'm in the fight. And the reason that I'm doing that is because like, I think it's really important, especially to fight for people who aren't in as privileged a position, whose future and lives depend on us winning even more than mine. That's why I want to keep fighting. That includes our kids. That includes a lot of other people in this country. So that's why I want to keep fighting. Number two, um, I think a lot about something that our friend um, Jason Kander tweeted um, during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where he served and um, also 
has wrestled with PTSD because of it. And so it was a hard day for him during the during the withdrawal. And he tweeted, I, you know, I'm sad and angry, um, but I have come to realize in life that denying myself joy serves no purpose. Um, and I think that's true in life, but I also think it's true in politics and especially in organizing. Like we are trying to get people to join our movement, right? To join our team. Would you want to join a team that's always outraged and cynical and self-serious and scolding everyone who's not part of it? Of course you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't want to join that, join that team. Joy said that she wanted an answer that will help her sleep tonight. I don't sleep well when I am scrolling through bad news before bed, which happens <laughs> quite a bit. I sleep well when... I think about what I'm going to say on this pod about that bad news. When I think like, how am I going to persuade people to think differently or act differently? How are we going to get people to join our movement, to join our team? I'm hopeful when I talk to volunteers. I'm hopeful when I talk to organizers. I'm hopeful when we go on the road and talk to listeners, which hopefully we'll be doing soon. I'm hopeful when when someone like Mariana uh, texts a question, tells, sends us a question that she's 18 and she wants to help out. Like, those are the things that make me hopeful. Like, so I, I don't know if I'm hopeful for America's future, but I am hopeful in our ability to change it. That's that's where I land on this. I think that's exactly right. And I always think about like what kept me hopeful pre-pandemic was when we would travel and we would meet all these people and it would be, you know, fans, you know, listeners of this podcast or audience who was engaged, who were coming to our shows to get people to sign petitions for to get, you know, ballot initiative, like minute $15 minimum wage ballot initiatives on the ballot. Or when we would meet with activists like the kids from Parkland and people who were registered, yeah. you know, high school kids who are registering voters in Virginia and elsewhere. And when you meet people like that, you, that you, you find powerful reasons for hope amidst what is a can feel like a very, very dark political and news landscape. And so there are like, you're exactly right. This is not, no one is promising you things can be better, but we are promising you we have a chance to make them better if we do the work. Yes, that's right. All right. We will be back in a minute with some of your lighter questions. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two, more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Uh, That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. All right, we're back with some more of your question. Uh, the team tells me that, unfortunately, a very common question was whether I'll eat carbs on Thanksgiving. Uh, my answer is, I'm not a monster. I'm a forty-year. I'm a forty-year-old dad. Of course, I'm going to eat carbs on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Are you telling the truth right now? Yes, of course. <laughs> look, I have. I we look. I have. I have been on a low carb diet i would say for a couple of years it's not like strict keto which is crazy strict on the carbs i just try to like cut more carbs i don't eat as many bread much bread as much pasta as much sweets but there are times when i just say yeah i'm gonna do whatever and thanksgiving is absolutely one of those days probably to be completely honest with you the period between thanksgiving and christmas there'll probably be quite a few cheat days or cheat weeks yeah i mean it's this is sort of when it all starts to fall apart for sure that's what I said. I'm yeah. a 40 year old dad. Um, all right. Justin on Twitter asks, did Barack Obama really hate pardoning the turkeys or was it all an act? Dan? This is really your thing. I paid. <laughs> one, like there are certain things when we worked in the White House that you just could pay no attention to. I picked two <laughs> things I just ignored. <laughs> Those two things were foreign policy and the turkey pardoning. I just was not going to engage in any of them. <laughs> Tough hit to the world. Well, no, I mean, it makes, it makes me the it makes me the positive of the world number one fan because I'm learning so much about what happened just down the hall from me. <laughs> and I That's literally because so it always happened like the Tuesday, I guess the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And it's sort of like we're trying to wind things down. It's it's like a really busy time in the White House because there's a whole bunch of stuff you're trying to finish before you actually get to go on a few days of break. And so I just never engaged. The speech would come by and see there'd be some jokes. They seemed funny. People laughed. Didn't care. He didn't hate it, but he did think it was silly. Like he he thought that the correspondence dinner was silly. He thought that all of these like yeah he hated that joke. But he but here's my thing. He he hated it. I put I'm doing air quotes right now. But he got he really got into it knowing that he had to do it. That was the same thing. with the, Now, the turkey pardoning was different because for the Correspondence Center, I think we wrote, and a lot of outside comedians helped us write, some legitimately funny jokes. For the turkey pardon, our goal from the beginning was to write really bad jokes. <laughs> That's like the whole purpose of the turkey pardoning, is to tell a bunch of dad jokes that are pretty bad, that I think... Years after I was like in the years that I was gone from the White House, he had actually had like Malia and Sasha join him and they just like rolled their eyes and disgust at their dad for telling these bad jokes, which I think I still helped write in those years. And but like, again, our goal was as cheesy and corny as possible. Plenty of puns, 
That's that's the fun of the turkey pardoning. It's dumb, it's silly, and so you tell stupid jokes. I mean, it is a bizarre White House tradition. You have these two turkeys come. They're named by someone else. They stay in a suite, I think, at the Waldorf for the Four Seasons. They do. Yes, they do. Is it the Four Seasons? No, it's what's the... uh, Whatever the W now. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't Some really, hotels. They they, it doesn't. It doesn't fucking matter if it's a Holiday Inn Express. It's two turkeys <laughs> in a hotel room. God knows why. Right? Does not matter. It's just like yeah, a that's bizarre, what happened. Yeah, it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. Um, Kai Tuck on Instagram asks, "Most embarrassing thing you've done in front of President Obama?" So for me, this this was um, early in the campaign. This was the, during the primary, and we would, the president would fly a lot from Chicago to Des Moines uh, on a very small plane. Uh, I don't usually, I don't usually go on that trip, but one time I had to because I was like working on a speech. Um, we're about to get on the, the the very small plane back home to um, Chicago, I believe, and Tommy, who was the Iowa press secretary, decided to tell Obama. By the way, you should know that Fabs is incredibly afraid of flying. Um, which Obama started laughing at. That was that was his response to, to my terrible <laughs> phobia. We get on the plane. It's a very small plane. It's like a six-seater. You know, that was like a very small plane. And I'd never been on a plane that small. Um, and I was sitting directly across from Obama. And he was like asking me all about my fear of flying. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's under control. Tommy was just exaggerating. We start, we start climbing. And... The entire time, I am like shaking my foot uncontrollably, not realizing that I was doing that. And Obama just like looks up from his papers that he was reading and he's like, are you going to keep doing that the entire flight with the foot? And I was like, oh, sorry. And then the plane, like right at that moment, just drops. It was probably like a small pocket of turbulence. It was probably nothing. And I leapt out of my seat and yelled so loudly that he laughed so hard and not only did he laugh so hard the rest of the flight, everywhere we went after that, he would tell people about what I did and how afraid I was and make fun of me for my fear of flying, <laughs> which, you know, that's that's that. I was very embarrassed. <laughs> so two things about that. I was on that flight where you had that. You were. <laughs> yes, I was I on, that flight. You're on that flight. And then the, the other thing is Obama never forgot that because in 2014 – we are oh God. That's a long on, time. It's a long time. We are on Air Force One, and we are having a conversation about a relatively shitty political landscape. And part of it is people. There was some poll that we had done, or someone had done, which showed a tremendous fear that people had of ISIS in their communities. Mm-hmm. And we were, and we got Obama got this very philosophical conversation with with a group of us about how people are not good at assessing their own risk, right? Like the like in their life, the odds that. They're going to get a bowl, which we'll have this time, or that ISIS is going right. to come to their community will is incredibly small compared to very real risks you have just like getting in the car every day. And he, he said, but, you know, it's even Favs, even Favs, he's a smart guy and he can't figure out that he's at more risk when he gets in his car to drive in the office than to get on a plane. But look at him. He can figure it out. So you became the prototypical example cool. of irrational cool. fear. It's probably to this day he tells world leaders that. I embrace my irrational fear. That's what a, that's what a phobia is. It's not necessarily rational. You've gotten much better over the years as someone who pre-pandemic used to fly a lot with you. Uh, you've, yeah. You've, well, I try I try to hide it now, and also once in a while, like you know, some Xanax helps. Um, okay, so uh, Sarah Steinberg on Twitter asks, 
What are Dan's thoughts on this season of Below Deck? And Annie on Twitter adds, Below Deck, Below Deck Med, or Below Deck Sailing? I don't even know what that means, but I assume that you do. <laughs> Let me put it in language you understand. Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. Okay, okay, I got you. It's gotcha. all versions of the same thing. Just one of them happens on a sailing yacht, one of them happens in the Mediterranean, one happens in an array of different locations. That, fascinating. And so in the last year or so, we've gotten a situation where the below the sun never sets on the Below Deck Empire. As soon as Below Deck is over, then Below Deck Sailing Yacht starts, and then as soon as that ends, the next week, Below Deck Met. So it's all kind of become a blur as to which, but they're all great. And we're probably maybe four or five episodes into this season of Below Deck. It's quite good. But this the most previous season of Below Deck Med, which was just like a month ago, was one of the all-time greats. So <laughs> what made it so great? The cast members or the the yachties all got along really well. It was like a, they were very fun. The and they and, and they've sort of figured out how to do this in the pandemic in a way, because a big part of the show is they they work hard and they play hard, John. So they work and then in between <laughs> charters. They go out on the town, but that became very challenging in the pandemic. And so they started like renting out restaurants for them. They have these dinners, which usually people get very overserved and into huge fights or all kinds of things. happen. I just I would highly if you're looking for a show that will not stress your brain, that shows you like really nice places around the world. It, mm-hmm. I highly rec- I highly recommend Blood Deck. Uh, Samantha Joe Brown on Instagram thoughts on Red Taylor's version. What does Emily love on the album? As you can imagine, we've been listening to this nonstop in our household. Obviously, obviously, the 10 Minute All Too Well is a masterpiece. It is a fantastic song. She did an incredible job. Um, the uh, Nothing New with Phoebe Bridgers, also tremendous. Gives me a little existential angst when I listen to it, but great song. Um, Better Man, I Bet You Think About Me. Charlie, who only really likes Wheels on the Bus up until now, actually likes this album really likes message in a bottle starts dancing around to that so that's uh, Charlie's becoming a Swiftie at a young age but yeah we're 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 just huge fans of uh huge fans of red red Taylor's version here in this household unapologetic about it and nor you you should not apologize for it everyone should love what they love um I would say that <laughs> I admittedly have some cultural blind spots mm-hmm. Taylor Swift is one of them all I really know like I've heard lots of Taylor Swift seems great but all I really know about the Taylor Swift discourse comes from your wife's social media presence. <laughs> so it seems great. Well, yeah. I wouldn't have, I do not think I would have, I mean, I wouldn't have become a, a Taylor Swift fan without Emily. It was just when I met her, when I met her, that's when Red first came out. That was the album that came out right when we met. And it was just nonstop the entire time. And so I, and first I went from being resistant to it to now being like a full on fan. Okay. Mike Jones on Twitter, favorite character on succession, who takes over in the end? Dan, why don't you start? Favorite character? That's sort of a loaded question, but it's got to be cousin. <laughs> cousin it's got to be cousin Greg, right? I mean, the most entertaining. I, that's who I laugh at when he's on there the most. Yeah, it's almost a tie between Tom and Greg for me. Yeah, yeah, I would. I, that would think, I would agree. I think that both of them like require the other one to to really be as funny. Like this, the last spoilers, spoilers. No, no, don't the do last not do episode. this. Do not do this. <laughs> 
I'm going to do it. Well, this is spoilers, but a general spoiler. Do you whatever. remember when you the had last... to recut an episode of Pod Save America because of a spoiler? Well, there's because Lovett didn't, Lovett didn't announce spoilers before okay. he like fucking spoiled the end of Game of Thrones or whatever he did. I can't remember. Something bad. Uh, but the last episode, the which had some sort of heavy themes about politics, let's say. The Tom and Greg scenes were basically the entire time they're thinking about what their life in prison is going to be like. <laughs> Some of the funniest scenes of the series thus far. I think it's like, this is now maybe my favorite show of all time, I would say. Yeah, I, I love it. So if, I don't know who's going to take over. And hopefully no one does. So the show just goes on forever. Like I do not need any, re- this is not who is going to sit on the Iron Throne. I need no resolution. I just want to hang out with these people doing absurd, terrible things for as many years as HBO will let us do it. But if it did have to come to a conclusion, and if the show was being made by the people who made Game of Thrones, isn't it obvious that Greg would be in charge? Yeah. He's, I mean, he's yeah, the brand they, of the show, right? Like They would, yeah. They, 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 they're they're going to brand it. Um, no, like, I don't think, I don't think they can let anyone win. Uh, like, you know, like any of the, any of the yeah. Roy family. Like, I think there's going to be some kind of ending where, either the company goes down or the like look i love the show these are just awful characters that have almost no redeeming qualities whatsoever (laughs) and yet you find yourself really into it usually i don't like a show like that where you just don't you don't like any of the characters but you sort of either love to hate them or love how pathetic they are you know i don't really hate them they're just a lot of them are sort of pathetic but it's like really fun like kendall is a very pathetic character yes (laughs) I mean, don't you think the the ultimate resistance Twitter end would be a liberal billionaire buys it and shuts it down? (laughs) I don't want to see that on Twitter. (laughs) All right. Brian Metcalf on Twitter asks, power rank your Thanksgiving side dishes. Here's my question about this. You have to, does gravy count as a side dish here or no? I mean, it's my favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal. Me too. Well, that that's what I was going to say. I'm like, because if it's counting as a side dish, you have to say gravy because without gravy, it's not a Thanksgiving meal. It just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just, who wants just mash- eating turkey? You're just eating turkey. Yeah. Turkey, which I like, but I like it a lot better with gravy. Mashed potatoes. I like. I like it a lot better with gravy. Stuffing is, which I love, but it also exists primarily and only as a vehicle for gravy. I don't have any sort of power ranking. I like them all. This This question, which we get almost every year, kicks off my least favorite part of every year is your child here yeah <laughs> charlie charlie come here buddy come here come say hi to dan and the pod save america audience oh look here at that say hi dan <laughs> this is look, gonna be great like, what oh, is that eating the drawstring which is a very important kid move you want to say something buddy what do you got to say <laughs> nothing <laughs> all right buddy <laughs> there we go. Oh, now he's talking. Oh, hold on. I lost my, I lost my earphone. That's fine. That was just a nice little interlude from Charlie. Anyway, go ahead. You were yeah, ranking so them. This kicks. I have no rank. Like, I like them all. I like gravy the best. Or I like stuffing the second best. But here's the thing. There's no wrong answer to this question, right? Mm-hmm. You like what you like. This is like th- <laughs> this question. It goes from this question to best books of the year to best movies Look, of the tell- year. You can tell Dan really is running for Senate. You know, he's not going to piss off the, the stuffing crowd <laughs> well, or, the, or the gravy crowd or the. The thing that dr- <laughs> this might be my this is my greatest pet peeve is that in politics, people confuse objective facts for subjective opinion. Democrats yeah, say climate true. change is a huge problem. 
Republicans say it isn't. But in the rest of life, everyone confuses subjective opinions for objective facts. How fucking dare you say that you love mashed potatoes? <laughs> mashed potatoes suck. You know, actually, this probably begins with your Halloween candy ranking. Where people are like, "You fucking asshole! Why do you like candy corn?" And like, the I don't know. I just corn like it. Discourse. Leave me alone, right? It's the same thing. It's like what? There's no wrong answer. Enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. Eat it however you would like it. There's no right answer. Just like what you like. Gravy stuffing. Mashed potatoes. That's my ranking. All other side dishes don't even come close. Vegetables, pff, who needs vegetables? <laughs> that's, that's it. Gravy stuffing mashed potatoes. That's my ranking. All right. Sahal Patel on Twitter asks, what are you most thankful for this year? Dan. I mean, this is going to sound terribly cheesy, but my family, right? We had, our family grew this year. Jack was born in the middle of a pandemic. You know, like it, we... Hallie was not pregnant with him when the pandemic started. We had a child in the pandemic. We spent, you know, all, and as you know, because you had also had Charlie in a pandemic, that mm. having having kids is never easy. It's much more complicated when you're worried about keeping them safe from viruses and all of that. But like, I was just thinking about this last night because my whole my whole family's here. My brother and his wife and my niece are here. My parents are here for for Thanksgiving. Is we have this like sort of amazing family of four people. And I never, uh, sort of, um, I, you know, you sort of never know what it's going to be like when you add someone to the family and like how it changes and improves. And to, like, as Hallie said, Jack's this amazing, just this perfect addition to our family. And it's just watching the two of them play together and sometimes disagree vehemently over who's, who gets to play with whose toys, uh, oh, wow. is, is amazing. So I'm very thankful for my family and how it grew this year. Yeah. I had the same answer. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful for my family. Um, for everyone's health, I'm gonna, you know, my, I'm very lucky that my brother is in LA and his wife and my parents are just north of us. They're here too, and we're all gonna see each other tomorrow. Thankful, incredibly thankful for my wife and our beautiful, very happy, joyful Charlie, who you just saw if you're watching the video. Um, so I couldn't could not feel luckier or more grateful um, for for my family and our and our health this year and through this. Uh, through these last couple of years. So a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. When we come back, a special feature that our producers have made for you as we look ahead to the midterms. Hi, I'm Aaron Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, 
stay out of my prickly pear for Texas and stay out of my strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're excited to try something new today. We put together a very special feature narrated by our own Tommy Vitor about what Democrats should be doing to better engage with Latino voters. We've talked about this issue on the pod before, uh, but we wanted to take a deeper dive in to better understand what happened in 2020 with the Latino vote and what issues are most important to Latino voters headed into 2022 and 2024. Take a listen. Thirty-two million eligible Latino voters made crucial differences in several battleground states. A new report underscores Democrats' messaging shortfalls with Latino voters in the 2020 election. You know, why is the president doing better with Latinos in Florida? Well, a lot is due to Cuban-American voters who are coming out in support of Trump, as Major just said. The 2020 elections had mixed results for Democrats. President Biden won, but a number of Senate and congressional candidates lost as you all probably remember. But one of the biggest causes of concern for pollsters and data nerds trying to understand what happened to the Democratic Party was the shift in the Latino vote. The story was that, you know, South Florida had shifted to the right. But I think what I saw was that it wasn't just a South Florida story. It's really the story that was happening across the country. Paola Ramos is a journalist and former political staffer for the Hillary Clinton campaign who has spent the last several years talking to Latino voters across the country. The question that I that I have and that I think is, is in front of all of us, is, is this the future of the Latino vote? And I think that's what you need to unpack. A report by the Democratic firm Catalyst found there was an eight percentage point shift among Latinos towards Donald Trump. In no place was that shift more apparent than in Florida where Latinos accounted for 17% of registered voters in 2020 and 58% of voters in Miami-Dade County alone. But in a swing state like Florida, capturing the Latino vote can be the key to capturing the presidency. So we decided to take a closer look at Latino voters in the Sunshine State. Paola Ramos and Carlos Odio, co-founder and senior vice president of Equis Labs, are going to help us understand why the shift happened and what Democrats can do to win back Latino voters. Hey, folks. Hey, hey, how are you? So we talking Florida? Yeah, well, I just wanted to... Carlos has served as a liaison between the Latino community and political campaigns. And his team at Eki's Lab studies the behaviors, experiences, and political identities of Latino voters. He's observed this shift from the front lines. So I asked him what he thinks is the cause. Do you have a sense of how much of this success in Florida that Republicans had is specific to Trump? Or is it a real partisan shift, or maybe it's a hatred of Democrats. Maybe it's all of the above, but like, are you able to separate those things out? I think as far as we can tell, a lot of it is economic. A lot of it is tied in 
to the pandemic moment, to Trump as businessman, to the way that the economy was, was looking pre-pandemic, to a fear of Biden coming in and shutting down the economy again, right? But in South Texas and South Florida, you have a much bigger swing. And in both those places, you have accelerants of the shift. And as far as we can tell in Florida, the accelerant is related to socialism, the socialism attack, which is not just like economic philosophy, right? It's actually an identity. It's like, we are pro-American, they are anti-American. That's what socialism means. For Latinos in Florida who fled the oppressive regimes of Fidel Castro in Cuba or Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, that word, socialism, can be triggering. Journalist Paola Ramos has seen it firsthand. I think socialism, whether you're from Venezuela or Cuba, and whether you're from Chile, Argentina, that word impacts you. You, know, you understand the threat that word poses, not just to you, but to everyone that is living around you. And one of the right strategies is to use this fear to scare voters by conflating communist or socialist dictatorships with progressive American politics. If someone is telling you all day long a lie, which is a vote for Biden is a vote for socialism or communism, if they tell you not once but twice, if they tell you not just in a stump speech, but on the radio and then on your local TV station. Los demócratas y Joe Biden son demasiado extremistas. And then you hear it on a YouTube video, and then your grandma's saying it, but then your uncle's also saying that if you hear that 10 times, 20, 50, 100 times, you believe it. There's just one problem. Democratic socialism hasn't worked anywhere in the world, and in fact... that Bernie Sanders believes in what he's fighting for. He believes in socialism. Not all Democrats are socialists. But all the socialists are Democrats. That's fake news. The term democratic socialism in this country, where people have free, free and fair elections, it, it is based on a democracy, and it is based on the voices of people, and it is based simply on the idea that the role of the government is to help people. That is completely misconstrued from what the right wants you to think when suddenly you see someone like Bernie Sanders or AOC or even Biden, who is the most moderate candidate of them all, and just put front and center the term socialism and slap that with communism. That is literally the definition of mis and disinformation, right? When you are intentionally, intentionally trying to create a falsehood. According to a new report by Nielsen, Latinos are more likely than any other group to receive, consume, and share misinformation. Spanish-speaking Latinos are the perfect victims of mis and disinformation, the perfect ones, and Republicans know that. The first reason being is that from the beginning of, of the immigrant story in this country, we literally live on our phones to stay connected. Most recently, we saw the right push misinformation and capitalize on Latinos' fear of socialism during the summer protests that erupted in Cuba over the island's oppressive government and lack of resources. You had Fox News doing town halls in Versailles. And welcome to Little Havana, the heart of my district. And you have radio hosts that are once again using these like trigger words, socialism y comunismo. Socialism and its history of failure. These Whatever. words that we typically hear a, a year, perhaps before elections, are already being planted slowly. And that is very dangerous. I think of someone like Senator Ted Cruz. His father is, is Cuban. Senator Ted Cruz is the first person that wants to block Cuban asylum seekers from entering this country. Yet Senator Ted Cruz is one of the first ones that capitalizes on this moment to call for freedom and rights of the Cuban people. That, to me, is a perfect example of the way that the right is capitalizing this moment. 
do they really care? And if they really care, then again, why don't you honor the same Cuban people that are out in the streets crying and demanding change? There's thousands of them in this moment as we're speaking, thousands of them stranded at the border in Texas in Ted Cruz's backyard. And he doesn't want them in. I asked Carlos what frustrates him most about the Democratic Party's response. Obviously, something like Cuba is very personal to me, um, as it is to other Cuban Americans. You know, my grandparents were political prisoners. My very existence, the fact that I was born in Miami, is politicized. Um, and I just want to see change in Cuba, right? But of course, issues that move people are tend to be very personal. It's not the abstract stuff. And I think sometimes we can think about issues like Cuba or related um, and think about it in very like abstract policy terms. But it's like this stuff is super, super personal and showing empathy here is a very big piece. And that's what that's what irks me is when we take these pieces for granted and we get outflanked. We were outflanked because we were so busy reacting to what Trump was doing that we weren't showing up for Colombians and Dominicans and Nicaraguans and Mexicans. And that's what frustrates me. Like, show we care. I think in our hearts we do. That's that's the democratic progressive brand is we care. Um, but we got to go show that. If you're sitting in the Biden White House and you're advising Joe Biden on the, like, the two or three things he has to deliver in terms of policy to make those tactics effective, what are those things? Well, one is, look, the stuff you got to deliver for everybody else, it's the same, right? It's, it's then how you go sell it. Mm-hmm. You know, Latinos are especially attuned to what you're doing to help small businesses, for example, which, by the way, Democrats are doing a lot to help small businesses and could be doing more even. The other piece is immigration. We do have to deliver on immigration. Part of what happens in 2020, different from 2016, is that Trump and his allies muddy the water on immigration. And so you, you hear from some of these swing voters who went for Trump is, I didn't think there was a really big difference on immigration. Whereas in 2016, Trump's the anti-immigrant, anti-Latino dude. And I just can't vote for that guy. And maybe I won't vote at all. Maybe I'll stay home. But Paola says there's something else at play that pushed Latinos to vote for Trump. What I found is that there is this deeper cultural question among us where there are many Latinos, particularly the ones that you meet in Florida, um, particularly Cubans, that have found in their journey in this country that Proximity to whiteness equals success. And as close as possible as you are to whiteness and as close as possible as you are to that circle of whiteness, then that means that you are American and that means that you made it. And so any way to disassociate yourself from your past, from your immigrant past, um, from where you came from is good. And so I think to me, that's sort of this like undercurrent wave that is happening among all groups, not just Cubans. Um, where there is finally a pass that Trump gave many people to say, yes, I am for Trump. And I think that's what you need to unpack. Of course, as Paola says, that's not the case for all Cubans or Latinos. Latinos are a racially, socioeconomically, and geographically diverse group. And making generalizations about their experience is a mistake Democrats, and frankly, everyone else for that matter, need to stop making. That's why Paola says it's important to reach out to people who don't fit into tiny preconceived boxes. That's always where I, I urge Democrats, like, you now look at those voices of, of Cubans or Latinos that may be dealing with two different identities, no? um, that may be dealing with, with different issues at the same time. And it's that complexity um, that I think we need to go after. And it's the hardest one to understand because it doesn't fit in a perfect box. So how do Democrats start winning back these voters? Turns out a lot of it could be as simple as just showing up. 
you can be terrible on policy. And I want to be clear, Trump was terrible on the policy, right? But if you keep showing up and talking about it, regardless of what you're saying, it's going to come across as caring. It's not just about the intricacies of the policy. It's about saying, this guy's on my side. And maybe the other people, who, by the way, aren't showing up in the same way, aren't on my side. Uh, I saw a quote from you in the New York Times. You said, this moment requires a full court press. My concern is that there's a belief that last year was an anomaly and that is going to go back to normal. That's especially troubling if Republicans go back to campaigning for those votes. What does a full court press look like? You're doing it all, right? You're doing the mail. You're doing the text messages. You're putting organizers in the communities. You are deploying your surrogates. You're deploying your principal's time. You are conveying to that voter, you are important to my coalition. I want you at my table. And it's not just lip service. I am, sh- I am signaling to you your importance through all of the different tactics that I am pursuing um, to communicate with you. That is what a full core press looks like. Despite all the work the left has to do, Paola thinks the timing couldn't be better. It's, it, is, it is such an exciting time to get this right. right? It, is, it is such an exciting, like all, all of the numbers are, are, are on Latino side, right? It is now we're the largest the minority voting bloc, right? We're voting in these like unprecedented numbers. Um, Younger Latinos are, I think, are more awake than they ever have been. Um, And I think that's exactly the change that we're seeing in Congress, right? Whether you love AOC or not, she is changing Washington, D.C. as you know it, right? And she's at the end of the day, a young Latina that's changing politics. And so it, it is the time to get it right. Whomever gets the right and is smart about it, I think we'll see these like incredible long-term effects. And I think that is like so exciting. Thanks to Carlos Odio and Paola Ramos for sharing their insights, to Flavia Casas and Olivia Martinez for producing this feature, and Lacey Roberts and Andrew Chadwick for editing and mixing. Uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Dan. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Media.